Support for the Legislative Gazette comes from New York State United Teachers, a union of professionals standing with more than 600,000 workers in education, human services, and health care with the Our Voice, Our Values, Our Union campaign. And United University Professions, representing 37,000 academic and professional employees at SUNY campuses and teaching hospitals across New York State. Frederick E. Cole, President, UUPinfo.org. Calls are intensifying for the border between the U.S. and Canada to reopen, and federal authorities on both sides appear to be moving toward a possible phased-in reopening soon. The Legislative Gazette's Pat Bradley reports. The northern border closed in March 2020 and has remained closed except to essential travelers. With COVID vaccination rates increasing and cases decreasing, calls for reopening the border, especially from U.S. entities, have been growing louder. Politico and Bloomberg News are reporting that there are indications within the Canadian government that an easing of border restrictions could occur as soon as this month. North Country Chamber President and CEO Gary Douglas says the reports are consistent with what they are hearing. I think part of it certainly is uh, in the run-up to the G7 summit, which starts on Friday, which will include the first face-to-face meeting between Prime Minister Trudeau and President Biden. So certainly I'm sure that has fed into the process, as has the growing chorus of uh, strong voices, not only on the U.S. side, but now very much on the Canadian side, that it's time to have a plan, it's time to show that you're charting a way forward. Douglas adds that a move to reopen the border would be a significant shift, especially by Canadian authorities. Certainly the vaccination effort has really started to pick up speed in Canada, so I think that's making them feel a little more comfortable. But then I don't think anybody can dismiss the stepped-up advocacy by uh, Senator Schumer, by our members of Congress, including Elise Stefanik and Brian Higgins and many others, has had to be listened to. You do not have the majority leader of the United States Senate come to your border not once but twice and say, we need you to step up your planning and your activities on this. It's having an effect. During the weekly COVID-19 briefing, Vermont Department of Financial Regulation Commissioner Michael Pichek reported that cases in Quebec have fallen over 30 percent this week. Governor Phil Scott then expressed optimism that border rules will ease soon. I think it's good news when uh, the Prime Minister Trudeau has uh, talked about getting to a certain point. It's either 70 or 75 percent. It looks like then things will be relaxing, and they've made terrific gains, particularly in Quebec. They're exceeding expectations, and so it's all good news. Hopefully, uh, this means that they will negotiate something between the U.S. government and the Canadian government and be able to open up the borders as soon as possible. Town of Plattsburgh Supervisor Michael Cashman looks forward to seeing Canadians traveling south of the border, but says there must be a smart and healthy reopening plan. I certainly am an advocate for some type of vaccine passport. I know that there are some people that are against that. For the health and safety of our communities and for each other, I think that is the strongest and easiest way to implement something is to have some type of international um, 
you know, vaccine passport. Vermont's congressional delegation sent a letter to the Biden administration this week asking it to engage with Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau quote, to work towards the appropriate milestones that would allow for the safe reopening of the border, unquote. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Pat Bradley. Joining us now, Legislative Gazette political observer, Alan Shartok. Alan, the state of New York legislature this week in its last week of session made some criminal justice moves. One of the major ones was to open up the industry, that's the gun industry, to liability lawsuits. We've seen a rise in gun violence amid the pandemic in many of our cities, including the capital city, Albany. There's been a number of shootings and innocent bystanders killed. So the legislature has moved in this area and also moved to protect many who get caught up on technicalities of parole violations to try to equal the playing field. And I'm wondering your thoughts this week as the legislature has made some moves that might not have been made in the past. Hey, David, the number one thing that people want for themselves and their families is safety. We were going through a period in which authority is being questioned, whether or not people were being held in jail who would not be there if they had more assets. We were talking about reforming, reformation of the police. And now along comes this scourge of violence that we see in our cities and in other places in which huge numbers of people are being killed, killed, murdered. And that, of course, runs contrary to what people want for themselves and their families. And so in a very short amount of time, we see that this movement to control the police, which was absolutely correct in terms of who they recruited, what they did, is being mitigated to some degree by the amount of violence. And when you have violence, people get scared. And when they get scared, they reach out for protection. And protection often comes in the form of politicians who would get by by eschewing the norms of decent police behavior, for example. Well, and you spoke with the Assembly Majority Leader, Democrat, Crystal People Stokes, about these criminal justice reforms, and specifically when it came to nonviolent folks who have been incarcerated. She said, by making these reforms, we'll actually save the state money, including saying that well, yeah, $60,000 to incarcerate a nonviolent felon. I had always heard 80000 but who knows? Let's split the difference. The fact is, it's a lot of money. And it is true that if somebody steals your money, for example, in a so-called white-collar crime, you're out your money. You can't send your kid to college, for example, or you, you don't have the resources to live the way you want to. It's quite violent, actually, when you think of it. So when you start dividing with white-collar crime and other kinds of crime, there is a difference. You kill somebody, you murder somebody, you knock them over the head. That's terrible. But on the other hand, if you steal their resources, you steal their money, you steal their way of life, that's pretty terrible too. So what do you do? You give them a little kiss on the hand, and you say you have to pay the money back, and we know you can't. So it's a tough one. Nevertheless, I think the idea that the United States has the most people in prison, I believe, in any of the democracies, mm -hmm. leaves you with the idea that something has to happen and there must be a better way of doing it. So I think People Stokes has the right approach to this, but I think we have to be very careful that the people who steal and take the resources away from a family and from individuals have to understand that they've done something very wrong. 
Yeah. And you pointed out, you know, and you mentioned it here, but uh, I'll go further, which is that that fear that people have, they, they want to be feel safe, has resulted in a number of prisons around the state being built. And then that led to you and Stokes talking about the prison industrial complex. Oh, there's no question. Look, David, every time there's talk of closing down a prison, the people in a particular community raise hell. And they say, not here. You do it somewhere else, but not here. We need our prison. It's the way we live. This where the people work as guards and in the food industry for prisons. And you take that away and we're out of luck. Well, too bad. The fact of the matter is Mario Cuomo had that problem. This governor has that problem. If you don't need the prisons, we shouldn't have them. And you should figure out a different way to use those prisons to make money for that community. Also spoke with Stokes about something that's a little bit controversial in New York right now, which is the Adult Survivors Act. It's an extension of the Child Victims Act, which would open up a window for those adult survivors of sexual abuse. It was passed unanimously in the Senate, and there's been talk about the Assembly because they haven't even brought it to the floor that this very act could catch the governor as a result of some of his scandals involving sexual harassment and even in one case groping. And Stokes was very adamant that the Child Victims Act was one thing, but she didn't support the Adult Survivors Act. She didn't. And it was very interesting. I was sort of taken aback. You know, this is an idea whose time has come where people don't always report things when they happen. She said, hey, report it when it happened. That's why we have these laws. Don't wait 20 years to do it. That's not what this is about. Well, there'll be psychologists and others who will explain why people wait and what their fears are. On the other hand, there's always the possibility that somebody will not be telling the truth. Listen, so many of the politicians who've been caught up in this kind of thing said that their accusers have not told the truth. And if they wait for all of that time, one wonders what that was all about. Look, women have been oppressed in so many ways. People have taken advantage of women in sexual relationships, and we know that mostly. There have been men situations too, but for the most part, it's women who have suffered through all of this. And any way in which we can make it easier to prosecute those who would harm women is okay with me. Legislative Gazette political observer Alan Chartop. Listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York State government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The New York State Senate's Judiciary Committee held 
and at times contentious hearing this week over Governor Andrew Cuomo's nominees to the state's highest court. Nominee Madeline Singus, Nassau County District Attorney, faced some tough questions from senators on the left and the right. In the end, Singus and the governor's other judicial appointees won approval in the Senate. The Legislative Gazette's Karen DeWitt was there and filed this report. Cuomo nominated Singus and Anthony Kenitaro, the administrative judge in New York City Civil Court, to fill vacancies on the state's Court of Appeals, New York's highest court. Kenitaro, who is openly gay, would replace the late Judge Paul Feynman, who was the first openly gay person to serve on the court. Singus faced the more intense scrutiny. Five progressive Democratic senators announced that they would vote against her nomination, saying the court already has too many former prosecutors and needs more public defense defenders and civil rights lawyers in the wake of racial injustice in the state's criminal justice system. They also voiced concern over the DA's opposition to the legislature's 2019 bail reform package and said she did not press charges against eight Freeport, Long Island police officers who were seen on video punching and kicking an unarmed suspect. Senator Alessandra Biagi, one of those opposing Singa's nomination, spoke on the Senate floor. I cannot, in good faith, vote in favor of D.A. Singus's nomination. I believe her past support of her for maintaining harmful criminal justice policies renders her unfit to serve on the Court of Appeals. Earlier in her opening statement to the Judiciary Committee, Singus highlighted her immigrant background. She is a first-generation American of Greek descent and her work with sexual abuse survivors and advocacy for crime victims and troubled youths. She acknowledged, though, the unease that many in black and brown communities feel about the criminal justice system. I know there is a crisis of confidence in our government and in our justice system. That's why I created community partnership programs and began hosting monthly meetings with seven community-based advisory councils to listen, to build trust and confidence. Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Brad Hoyleman asked Singus about the criticism that as a prosecutor, she might side against criminal defendants in issuing decisions. What are your thoughts about the court having uh, another judge who whose legal experience is primarily rooted in criminal prosecution. Singa says she could put her former role aside and be an impartial judge. That the moment I take my oath, if I'm fortunate enough to do so, as a judge for the Court of Appeals, I shed my prosecutor robe. I put on the robe and I take off that hat and it stays off. Meanwhile, Republicans in the Senate object to Cuomo's nominees for a different reason. The governor faces a number of scandals, including allegations of sexual harassment, hiding the true number of nursing home residents who died in the COVID-19 pandemic, and using staff to help him write and edit a memoir for which he was paid over $5 million. Cuomo has denied all of the allegations. The state assembly is conducting an impeachment inquiry. If they decide there's enough evidence to impeach the governor, then a trial would take place in the state Senate with senators and Court of Appeals judges acting as jurors. Senate GOP leader Robert Ort says the two nominees could potentially sit in judgment of a governor who chose them for their jobs. The governor might be appointing would-be jurors if you have an impeachment trial. At the committee meeting, ranking Republican Senator Phil Boyle asked Singus about that. If you could feel you can be impartial to uh, sitting as a juror because the New York State Constitution says you will be one with the person that has appointed you or nominated you, I should say. So uh, how do you feel about that? Singus replied that she would not be influenced. I have always acted independently. I have always been my own person. I have always been able to look at the facts 
and apply the law of the case. Boyle, who is also from Nassau County, supports Singus' nomination. Senator Boyle also asked Judge Canatero if he could serve as an unbiased juror in a potential impeachment trial. Canatero says he could. In Albany, I'm Karen DeWitt. A judge has now ruled in favor of New York Attorney General Tish James in a lawsuit filed last month against the Rensselaer County Board of Elections and its commissioners, claiming officials failed to provide voters with adequate and equitable access to early voting poll sites. The Legislative Gazette's Dave Lucas explains. The Republican Board of Elections Commissioner for Rensselaer County told WAMC in April the BOE was in compliance with the state's early voting law, saying an early voting site in Troy is on a bus line and was used by thousands of residents last election season. In May, New York Attorney General Tish James, a Democrat, filed a lawsuit against the board, claiming officials failed to provide voters with adequate and equitable access to early voting poll sites. That statement to WAMC wound up referenced in the lawsuit. A Rensselaer County Supreme Court judge ruled in James' favor Monday. She argued that when the board selected early voting sites, it ignored criteria required by New York's early voting law in deciding not to place more sites in Troy, the county's population center, and home to the majority of the county's minorities. The judge ordered the board to select a site by Wednesday ahead of the June 22nd primary. Melanie Trimble with the Capital Region Chapter of the New York Civil Liberties Union says the move will ensure everyone has equal access to the polls throughout Rensselaer County. Early voting sites were supposed to provide for very robust voting populations to come out and um, many people in voting in a single day at the big burden to take the day off of work or even a half a day to get to the polls, early voting has proved to be um, very beneficial to uh, access to the voting booth for many, many people. And so it's you know, a positive force that we have that the courts are compelling Rensselaer County to choose a site in Troy that's accessible by public transportation and provides handicap accessible and parking and so on, so that people in Rensselaer County who live in the city of Troy will be able to vote in the early voting uh, mechanism that the Board of Elections at Rensselaer County has created. In late May, the League of Women Voters of Rensselaer County accused the Board of Elections of voter suppression. Renee Powell is president of the Troy branch of the NAACP. This tactic is being used to make it difficult for people in the black and brown and low-income communities to exercise their right to vote. This coalition has been communicating with the Rensselaer County Board of Election Commissioners for at least three years to create an equitable opportunity for all people to vote to no avail. Trimble says activists and advocates are grateful that the Attorney General took notice and decided to take action. We hope people get out and vote. There are big issues coming up for Rensselaer County. You know, going to the polls is the only way for voices to be heard, and we hope we've made it easier for people to take the time to get educated and to get to the polls. So that's what I would say, encourage everybody to get out and vote. The Board of Elections did not respond to requests for comment. Early voting begins June 12th. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm Dave Lucas.
You are listening to the Legislative Gazette, a program about New York state government and politics. I'm David Gustina. The 36,000-acre privately-owned Whitney Park in upstate New York may be split up and sold to private buyers. Recently, Whitney Industries announced it would apply to the Adirondack Park Agency to subdivide the undeveloped tract into 11 separate lots. New York environmental organizations have expressed concern over future impacts on open space, ecological integrity, wildlife, and water quality. The groups are urging lawmakers to pass a bill that would strengthen the APA's oversight of subdivided lands. The Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard spoke with Dave Gibson at nonprofit Adirondack Wild about his concerns. The 36,000 acres uh, that is owned by Whitney Industries uh, and that the owner wants to create, uh, uh, transform into Whitney real estate uh, has been in the family of Whitney ownership since 1890s and is in the central heart of the Adirondacks in Long Lake in Hamilton County near Franklin County. So it's right in the center of the Adirondack Park. Uh, many, many uh, decades ago, it was uh, nearly 100,000 acres. Um, and um, it was the cradle of American forestry. This is where Gifford Pinchot and other um, famous Americans thought that we could experiment with forestry and make it sustainable in America. So it has a long, long history in the Adirondacks as a very important area and uh, private ownership. And it was recognized by the DEC uh, in in 1990 and by the state of New York as a high priority for protection under the state's open space conservation plan. And in 1997, the state bought 15,000 acres from Mary Lou Whitney um, that is now part of the uh, William C. Whitney wilderness area. So this is what's left from that uh, 15,000 acres that was taken out and now it's 36,000 acres just south of Little Tupper Lake. And these uh, inv- this, this land includes 22 ponds and lakes, uh, all connected by streams and wetlands. It's extremely wet and important um, uh, spruce spruce fir forest that um, the state of New York continues to feel and the public continues to feel is a very high priority for protection. There's a vision to subdivide the 36,000 acres into 11 separate parcels, uh, splitting it up essentially uh, what could be between 11 different owners. I know that Adirondack Wild and a number of other conservation groups are concerned about this, and you're also pushing for uh, some degree of stepped-up oversight. So could you explain your concerns and what kind of strengthening of oversight uh, the conservation groups would like to see? The conservation design uh, effort in the legislature uh, is the first, would be the first uh, amendment to the Adirondack Park Agency Act in 50 years. So 50 years ago, the APA was created as a regulatory body for 6 million acre Adirondack Park. And it was given broad powers by the legislature to to zone private lands and to regulate their use uh, in a very complex complex jurisdictional framework uh, that's shared with local government. And this bill would uh, require that the APA and private applicants like Mr. Hendrickson at Whitney Industries uh, negotiate before the application is deemed complete to uh, set aside large blocks of forest for uh, open space, forestry, and wildlife purposes. So, and to 
design whatever private development or subdivisions in ways that are least harmful to the environment so that the ecological impacts of each house, roadway, driveway uh, are minimized by a design process that's laid out in the legislation. And this is a very important advancement, scientific advancement in the um, Adirondack Park Agency Act, the first one in 50 years. The Adirondacks have always existed as this unique uh, conglomeration of both private and public lands. So is there a concern that uh, this regulation would um, get in the way of the way things have sort of always operated in the Adirondacks? Not at all. The APA has always had the authority to work with applicants pre-application and during, uh, during public hearings, for example, to design, uh, uh, design subdivisions in ways that, are, that uh, do not have an undue adverse impact on the Adirondack Park's natural resources. That's already in, that's been 50 years in the legislation. So the, the difficulty is that the APA only uh, enforces that provision um, and that ability to work with applicants to, to design subdivisions sporadically. It doesn't do it consistently. For example, in just in March of this year, the APA allowed 34 new lots on Woodward Lake, uh, circling a, a, a private lake without septic, without public water, and fragmenting the forest above the lake into multiple different lots, making it very difficult to manage as forest. So that's an example of the APA, which could have designed it differently with the applicant, simply mostly accepting what the applicant gave the APA and then putting their rubber stamp on that project. And this bill, if it's passed, would um, really mandate that the APA and the applicant work harder pre-application at a concept that would protect, be more protective of the lakeshore and of the adjoining forest so that uh, forestry and open space and wildlife uh, conservation and the connect connectivity that allows wildlife to migrate um, throughout the Adirondacks would be maintained. That's Dave Gibson of environmental nonprofit Adirondack Wild, speaking with the Legislative Gazette's Lucas Willard. And that about does it for this week's show. We had help from the New York State Public Radio Network. For copies, call 1-800-323-9262. That's 1-800-323-9262. Ask for program number 2124. Or just listen or schedule a podcast on the web at wamc.org. And join us again next week at this same time for more news on New York State government and politics. For the Legislative Gazette, I'm David Gustina. David Gustina.